When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 120th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is starting where people start. I'm joined by Victoria Grady, who, along with Patrick McCreesh, is the co-author of Stuck, How to Win at Work by Understanding Loss. The publisher is Rutledge. Victoria is the academic director of the MSM graduate program and associate professor of management organizational behavior in the School of Business at George Mason University. She's also the professor in residence for Forbes. Besides her consulting practice and previous books, Victoria has also had her writings appear in publications such as the Harvard Business Review and the Journal of Change Management. Welcome to the show, Victoria. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm thrilled to be here today. Good. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So if you don't mind, give us a brief overview of what the book's about. So the book is actually a, um, a continuation of some original research that I did um, back earlier in 2015, 2016. And Patrick and I published um, what I would consider to be um, a more academic textbook uh, like uh, uh publication. And unfortunately, about mm, seven people read it. <laughs> so we <Sure. laughs> we recognized that it needed to be a bit more um, user-friendly, as I'm quoting in the air, uh, air quotes. Um, and we worked on Stuck Together. Patrick and I worked really hard to create a book that was um, a more user-friendly um practice-oriented type of discussion around the human behavior um, of change, right? And when I say human behavior of change, I mean the individuals um, that are collectively the organization obviously are humans, right? And we all have a very unique perspective and how we engage um, and interact with change and transformation in our organization. So we wanted to create something that was easy to understand, easy to follow, and quite frankly, easy to put into practice in your organization. Sure. Well, I have to tell you that I was struck by the fact the book does a lot with attachment theory because uh, I have a PhD in English and probably the lead into my creating a company that was in the psychology space essentially was I was taking a was working for a company and doing the PR work and often going to South Carolina and uh, didn't have a book to read on the flight down. So back in those days, they still had magazines and I think it was Business Week, maybe Newsweek. Anyway, they had a special article, long article uh, about attachment theory. And I read it with absolute fascination. So 
in your case, uh, you have a diagram. It's on page 61. And you have a high avoidant and low avoidant and low and high anxiety and these four quadrants. Um, seems to me a rather central chart to the book. Can you walk us through a bit and probably for, for listeners, give them some a sense of what attachment theory is all about. Yes, Dan, I think that is so interesting. And I would be super curious if you remembered um, what um, what year even that article appeared in Business Week, because I had a similar experience um, with, with a, a book by uh, a gentleman named Jerry Harvey um, called The Abilene Paradox, which um, is you know, more organizational behavior related, but he mentioned attachment theory um, in that book. And it set me off um, down a path that ultimately became um, the work that I've done now for, for 20 years. And so attachment um, the attachment theory in a nutshell is a it's a biological um, and instinctual response that all humans have um, that is solidified or kind of is put in place um, very young in our lives. So somewhere between um, zero and eight months, the literature tells us we form an attachment, and again, air quotes, um, to an object um, that is familiar and comfortable to us to help um, transition through times of um, uncertainty. And so at that age, your transition, most children um activate that attachment response when they are um, first trying to um, put the, let themselves fall asleep in a safe space, right? And so it would be something um, to do with generally, um, go, you know, you're, you're going to bed routine. It might be a blanket or an animal or a, a mobile that plays above your bed, but some object that helps you feel secure as you um, transition to, you know, being an infant and falling asleep. And then throughout life, we do this repeatedly, not necessarily with a blanket or a teddy bear, although some <laughs> might might use a blanket or a teddy bear, but we do it with different objects. And as we get to the workplace, a lot of us use our leaders or our, or our technology or our office space um, or the um, ability to work remote now. I mean, that COVID changed everything the pandemic did in terms of what we um, what we rely on for support. But basically, attachment theory is um, it helps you understand why we need um, those support mechanisms as we transition um, through change. So that's kind of a kind of a, a super quick overview. Does that help? Um, It does. I'm going to take it a bit further. But uh, to answer your own question, I think it was probably actually Newsweek and it was the spring of 1998. Uh, So so quite a a while ago at this point. Uh, But I I do remember fetching it out of the, uh, you know, cubby hole up front in the airplane and uh, just loving the article. I thought it was so revelatory. Uh, And, you know, if we take it to a work situation, whereas attachment theory might often involve uh, the parents, maybe even stereotypically the the mom, you know, in the workplace, the boss <laughs> becomes so often that that primary relationship, which determines whether we're actually going to be uh, satisfied and, and have fulfillment at work or end up fleeing the place. Since uh, a lot of the research, including the work done by Gallup, would indicate that that relationship really kind of overshadows anything else that happens in the workplace. Is that your your own experience or you got some additional wrinkles to that? You know, I think that is, it's a, that's a very interesting um, reference. I do think the leader is extremely important, but a lot of times we have found, especially um, 
in our work, um, as I live in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, so we've done a significant amount of work with federal organizations. And, and, and federal organizations, a lot of times the top leader is a political appointee. And so that person comes and goes. And so it would be particularly um, challenging if a, a strong attachment was um, a consistent um, you know, mechanism for support because those leaders are going to come and go. There's, there's no way around it. That's just the, the, the nature of um, federal, uh, federal agencies um, and political appointees being oftentimes at the top. So what we've seen is that there are different types of support objects um, other than the leader that are, can be just as effective and it, as consistent. And it could be um, you know, a colleague or a coworker. We've seen teamwork emerge many times um, as a um, as a substitute for a strong relationship with a leader. And I think that is um, fantastic, quite frankly, and very collaborative in nature. And we saw some of that um, really get strained as people were sent home in response to the pandemic because the proximity to their teams was now geographically dispersed. And that was very challenging for a lot of folks who were um, used to having that support of the teams just right there um, available to them at any time. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, no, I think we are, you know, we underestimate how much we depend on these these visceral sensory <laughs> signals and attachments and experiences together. Um, you know, we, we like to think we've evolved way past that, but I, I don't think that's remotely the case. Um, going back to the, the diagram on page 61, so you have these four groups, the anonymous, the insecure, the stable, and distracted. And then you also have something else in the book that got my attention because I'm a big fan of the big five model, five-factor model for personality traits. Um, but I, I noticed that because you were kind of mapping the stable, autonomous, distracted, and insecure onto those five personality traits. Maybe you want to say more about that. But I also noticed that openness, interestingly, did not get mapped onto any one of those four uh, kind of parameters, insecure, autonomous, et cetera. Um, just that's the nature of openness. It's not going to do that. I just was curious. Mm-hmm. Let me go back to your first question first. And let's, um, the, the, the diagram on page 61. So those are attachment styles. Um, and it's interesting, um, Dan, because that has really been an evolving segment of our research literally in the last year. And so a lot of what um, we have found in the last year uh, is not reflected in the book. And the interesting piece um, is is understanding more about how individuals in organizations um have specific attachment styles and what role those attachment styles um, might play on your ability to be a good leader, right? Because a, a lot of these are are um, perspectives similar to personality that are um, grounded and in, in really based on your environmental interaction and experience um, as a child and how that <clears throat> impacts your um, you know, your continuous evolution as a member of an organization and potentially a leader in an organization. I mean, it's really fascinating. And a lot of the work um, initially was hypothesis driven around um, the, the the big five. And so I, I will share that I think that we have uh, are evolving and are in process of collecting 
um, some data in that space that is going to um, give us more information about how it might map um, more succinctly. We have a really good sample population of uh, individuals that we are working with. And, and so I think that that is a, my response to that last part of your question is, let's just stay tuned because I think it's evolving. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I, I, as a researcher, I'm going to, I'm going to say, stay tuned and it's coming down the pipeline and it'll probably be out there in the next three, three months or so, but I'm going to hesitate to comment further than that. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll take you to one other model before I, I let this go. So I happen to be from St. Paul and uh, the land of Charles Schultz. In fact, a uh, hockey arena he dedicated is probably three blocks from my house. So you also have one other table, and I don't normally get table obsessed in my interviews, but uh, uh, this one got my attention because you took the Peanuts characters and you put them across these models. So maybe you've evolved way past that. But my question would have been, whatever happened to Snoopy? Because he wasn't, he wasn't given one of these four dimensions. Uh, Either you can you can share with us. I, I imagine your research does not involve the Snoopy characters, but uh, the peanut characters. But uh, I don't know anything you want to say there. I'm being a little bit frivolous, perhaps, but not necessarily. No, I don't think so. It's funny that you bring that up because um, Linus was the initial connection for me personally. When I read about this in Dr. Harvey's um, book, I, I said, huh, I'm not sure I buy it. And then um, I came across a picture of, a month or so later, um, randomly, of Linus and his blanket. And I was and I was struck by that image so much so that I um, even initially communicated with the um, <laughs> with the folks who own all the Charles Schultz um, intellectual property to see if they would let me use Linus. Um, they said, sure, but it's going to be really expensive. And I was like, mm, no, I'm an academic. That's probably not. <laughs> it's probably not, not going to work. No, it's yeah. not going to work. But <laughs> I will definitely use that when I'm explaining to people. Um, and, and that's very relatable is, is Linus. So the original image in my brain of how this works was Linus. We use the Peanuts characters um, because that is where I always start my discussion, um, especially with uh, with folks who are um, a bit uh, dismissive of acknowledging that a developmental psychology theory could have application to adults in the workplace. And so when you when you initially introduced that, sometimes it's met with skepticism. And so to interject the Linus example, oftentimes, oh, okay, now I'm with you. Um, as far as Snoopy goes, that is a great question, Dan. Um, I'm not sure. Here's what I'll tell you. I think Snoopy would fit in the middle and one of the things that we've found, and we've really been digging in around our attachment styles research, is 58% approximately of individuals um, in the world, I'm, and again, I'm, you know, I'm using quotes in the air, individuals in general, um, type out in the secure quadrant. But what we found is that not all secure is the same, right? And we have identified, literally, this is hot off the press, um, three different clusters, if you will, in the secure quadrant in the last um, a few months. And I really think Snoopy would be um, an individual that would fit towards the middle of that of that um, quadrant. And that seems to be a really, really fantastic place 
for leaders who embrace change, not only for themselves, but are who are able to really um, drive it forward um, with an incredible level of support for their employees. And so it's really um, that space where the the if the leaders in that that little um, niche, they seem to be able to consistently have successful change and transformation. I'm not able to, you know, give you data at this moment, but um, but we should be able to have some pretty hardcore information um, out in the next few months. And Dan, I'll give you a teaser that I'll come back <laughs> and tell you more about that. <clears throat> uh, well, let, let's stay with the um, stay with the idea of these these leaders who are successful. I mean, what to the extent that you can you can offer anything at this point? I mean, you know, it it, it seems to me a lot of leaders are urging other people to change, but aren't necessarily changing themselves. So those who are able to do both parts of that and then be internally consistent, uh, is there a profile that fits? Is it uh, more women than male leaders? Is it uh, a certain personality trait that seems to help them with this? I would think of openness to experience being the natural fit, but um, take me where you might with that question. (laughs) Um, I, I I will, and I think that openness to experience is one way to describe it. But I think um, interest or um, experience with developing relationships. So openness to connection, but that and it, but it's really not just openness, right? I mean, it's really about individuals who are aware and connected um, with how they feel but also willing to um, put themselves out there and take the time. I mean, we see leaders all the time who are like, I don't have time for this. Come on, chop, chop, chop. chop. We got to move forward. That's not what, what your people often need you to do, right? They need you to say, okay, this is expensive. This might be time consuming, but I hear you folks that relationships are an important connectivity is a really critical and important part of you understanding why this change is coming down the pipeline, how this change is going to impact your day-to-day work task, how this change could impact your personal life in addition to your work um, and how that work-life balance um, is a very important part to who this organization and its culture is. I mean, it's all those things that are oftentimes the things that leaders um, designate out to others. And what we're seeing is that employees really want it to come, um, you know, from 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 their 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 from the top from the the individuals that really have the ability um to um represent that organization does that make sense Dan? Oh no, I, I like that answer a lot for for a couple of reasons. One is I just recently re- read a uh, piece in the Harvard Business Review. Uh, it was a survey of executives and how they spend their time. And I would love to have said that they spent their time kind of like Jack Welch did, which was more than 50 percent of it uh, on personnel issues and interacting with pretty sizable groups of people and understanding where they were coming from and what their issues were and how they felt and so forth. And said the article revealed that uh, more of their time was spent entirely alone or with very small cadres of people they already were very familiar with. Um, so there wasn't the kind of outreach I would have expected or, or hoped, because I, I agree with you. I think that's that's what a, a good leader who's going to make those changes uh, needs. They, they've got to get past their own comfort level 
And it strikes me they, they often don't. Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes jobs. So I'll give you an example. We did um, a little bit of work with a federal agency, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, and that particular federal agency had a cluster of individuals that all had very similar personality types, and they were also very similar attachment styles. And what we recognized is that for that work, um, for that uh employment category for that group of individuals, having that similar personality type and the um, similar attachment perspective was very important because they had to make really, really critical decisions very quickly, right? And you and I would, um, as uh, members of uh society at large are, are, are happy, quite frankly, that we have individuals um, that can make decisions like that, you know, on a, very, very quickly and decisively. But what we saw is that the leader for that organization um, was actually not like that. The leader was that bridge between those individuals and the and the bigger agency. And it was that incredible bridge that I think made that organization um, that was so siloed in terms of the, you know, all people being so similar. That's what that's what made them able to exist in that space. Does that make sense? Well, it it does. I, I guess I'd come back to something. I, I'm going to stay with my comfort level concern. I uh co-authored a kind of group created a book called blah 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 snarky guide to office lingo and the, the definition I, I used for diversity was in senior management a short white guy uh, because I gotta tell you as I go through LinkedIn uh, and I see who's the exo- executive team company after company we we have moved so little <laughs> in terms of incorporating diversity I'll start with gender but it goes past that. Um, and so it seems to me that uh, the rank and file looking at the executives, exhorting them to change, could easily just say, wait a second, how much have you changed? How, how much are you open to change? Because in your book, uh, you have some statistics that would seem to indicate that we, we have two, at least two really big issues in the workplace. One is around you know, the culture of the company, which seems to be more the purview of the executives to try to help handle. And most companies find that their culture isn't all it could be. And another big one is employee engagement, which is pretty low. And that one seems to be more the purview of the manager. So that that seems to be the dichotomy a bit with motivation falling to the manager. Uh, I want to make sure before we get out of the interview that you have a chance to te- speak about those two two levels and uh, their, their charges to make things work. Mm-hmm. And those two levels being engagement and culture? <laughs> Yeah, and executives and managers, mm-hmm. respectively, in, in that. Does that does that comport with what's in the book or am I, yeah, I mistaken? No, uh-uh. I totally, I, no, I absolutely think so. There's just, you know, it's, it's interesting because I am definitely an academic at the core. So when um, people start talking about different things like you just did, my brain just starts spinning <laughs> with, with, with ideas and thoughts. And, um, you know, I think that what you're, disca- what you're describing um, is an incredibly important part of, um, of, of kind of where we've landed and making sure that the, I'll tell you one thing, and this is what was going through my brain that we found um, in the, a couple of years ago, um, is that engaged people 
are super interesting. And oftentimes, as you would probably expect, your highest performers are extremely engaged. But one really interesting nuance that we found that we um, think is an important lesson for both managers and um, executive level leadership is that a lot of times our most engaged employees who are our high performers are also running themselves into the ground, right? And I think that observation and that um, research actually came out of the Emotional Intelligence Laboratory at Yale. And it was um, it was game-changing for me personally um, to consider. And I think that as I've considered that in the role that, you know, attachment styles and attachment behavior play in that bigger picture, um, I think that is a super important message for executives um, to consider how all these different pieces fit together. And for those organizational leaders who aren't willing to take the time to really understand the individuals that are both your high performers and everybody else, right, inside the organization, it is to say that that particular organization, I believe, will struggle with change, period. I do not believe that it is going to be an easy road um, if you don't take the individual um, behavioral um, response from from your collective organization as a critical factor in who the organization is and how it functions. And you can't do that if you're isolated and you're not really out there um, interacting with your people. Does that make sense, Dan? Yeah. And then you have to show respect for emotions. Another definition that someone offered who's an HR specialist was that HR was defined as, as seen by, unfortunately, some some uh, maybe machismo male leaders as, quote unquote, the Kleenex lady, that it was all about tears and it was you know poo-pooed. Uh, but in fact, of course, emotions are, are, are very important, as both of us in this conversation realize. So I want to thank you, Victoria, so much for your time uh, and for being my guest here on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode 120, Starting Where People Start. Uh, Victoria Grady is along with uh, her co-author, Patrick McCreesh, uh, the author of Stuck, How to Win at Work by Understanding Loss. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from Winston Churchill, who said, to improve is to change, to be perfect is to change often. Until next time, take care and be well. Thank you.